My name is Dario Hasenstab, Ivy Degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the impact of social media and Twitter on global dynamics through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Good to have you here, Balder. Pleasure to be here, Dario. Then let's start um, with our first category. What are the facts in two minutes? From the late 1990s onwards, the internet has quickly developed from a niche phenomenon into a tool the majority of the world uses every day. It has become essential worldwide, including, of course, the West, and in particular where the majority of work, studies, and entertainment are consumed via the internet. Globally, there are 5 billion internet users every day, 63% of the global population. Out of them, 396 million use Twitter, 1.4 billion use Instagram, and 2.8 billion use Facebook. In the UK, for an example, young users spend three hours on average on these social media platforms for all kinds of reasons, connecting with friends, entertainment purposes, or being on Twitter, because on Twitter uh, in particular, 94% of people express interest in current events and politics. And this platform has been purchased by the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, The Boring Company, and SolarCity. He first expressed interest in buying Twitter for 43 billion US dollars in April of 2022, but put it on hold in May and was finally obliged to buy it in October of 2022 by a US court. Once he owned the company, he started making a long list of announced changes, ranging from bringing back banned uh, US President Donald Trump to increasing free speech. Following these announcements, advertisers pulled their ads from the platform. Since then, Twitter has lost half of its top 100 advertisers. Uh, a recent report states that these 50 advertisers have spent almost 2 billion US dollars on Twitter ads since 2020. Following this, Musk laid off 3,700 Twitter employees, accounting for half of the company's workforce, citing losses of more than 4 million US dollars every day. And then he also demanded extreme working hours, uh, up to 80 hours a week from the workforce remaining. And I would say that from here, then we just jump right into our next category. What is the bubble? Before we talk about Twitter in particular, I think it's going to be very useful for us to I mean, examine the overall bubble here. And this obviously has to do with the internet in general. And here you brought up a very interesting thought uh, prior to us recording this, um, a scenario in which you asked, what would a person from the 1950s, if you introduced to them the, the idea of the internet, of a, you know, a tool where the global population can come together and share ideas, they would have had a vastly different idea of what we have today. Yes, this, this comes from the, the fact that my generation is the last generation that knew a world without internet when i was a child we had no internet it was when i was an old teenager and a student that internet actually became a thing and we could slowly start doing things uh, with it and if you had asked people in my childhood or people in the 1950s or even people in the 17th century we are going to have a world where people can connect 
through something called a computer. They can talk to each other, listen to each other, share knowledge with each other, and all that kind of thing. Uh, most of it for free. And this is going to make billions of people connect. Then your reaction probably was, wow, that is absolutely amazing. We are going to have a world full of greater understanding of people being way more educated, people being way more knowledgeable, uh, people breaking down nationalist barriers. All those kinds of ideas would be your theoretical framework if you were told about such a futuristic concept, right? And that makes a lot of sense because that question in the 80s or in the 60s or um, 400 years ago would be answered from a framework of those times in which intellectual conversation was sparse, was difficult to get. You would usually have it with your friends. You had to go to special events. You would have to buy books to properly read about philosophical or intellectual uh, thought or ideas. And it was a blessing, a luxury to actually have that exchange with others about knowledge, about wisdom, about all those items. And now fast forward to 2022, and that's conceptual thinking about what the internet would have looked like hasn't really come true. Yes, there is this incredible knowledge exchange. Anyone, anywhere with access to the internet can find out almost anything about history, about philosophical thoughts and all that. That is absolutely true. But what it has done with us, it has changed our behavior and our relationship with knowledge. It has changed our relationship with um, intellectual thought. It has our changed our relationship with ideas. And rather than internet amplifying rich intellectual debates that humanity has experienced over thousands of years, it has changed and sort of reduced that intellectual debate in ways that should worry all of us. And this realization has not been widespread yet, right? I mean, there is a discussion, I would say, since the US election of 2016, you know, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, popped up. That was the first time people also started talking about the dangers of the internet, you know, what, what it could do to politics and the global, the global scene. But so there's the absolutely, uh, the overall effect it would have on, on people's minds, on the way we think, on the way we consume knowledge, on the way we produce knowledge. Um, I, th I don't think that this has been a realization yet and the potential dangers that could come with it. Exactly. In many ways, most of that debate about data protection and privacy is a very liberal debate, right? But it is not a debate about our human psychology. It is not a, a debate about the value of knowledge and the value of knowledge, knowledge exchange and the value of ideas. Uh, it is important to have data protection, but we are not paying attention to the way that our thinking is changing because of the internet. And one very important issue that should concern all of us is um, our relationship to what knowledge is. So they're the new generation, the internet generation, if you like. Um, That's me. Hello. That's me. <laughs> good, good to meet you, Dario. There are two important concerning aspects about this new generation. The first is them being a victim kind of of bad 
societal leadership and management, namely that your generation is the first generation in modern history that is earning less money, is less wealthy than the previous generation, than your parents. That is, that is bad news and that's got very little to do with you and everything to do with previous generations. Um, the second bit has more to do with you, namely that your generation is the first generation that has less general knowledge stored in your minds compared to previous generation. And with that, we mean ask people of your age, please identify these 20 historical figures or please identify these 20 philosophical streams of thought, schools of thought, whatever. Then your generation will do worse on that test than previous generations. You know less about philosophy, less about history, less about sociology than your parents did. See, I mean, both of these facts uh, or observations, I mean, we can obviously back up. I mean, so when it comes to the income, this is obviously something, uh, you know, we can we can count and observe is where millennials in the United States now make 20 percent less than the previous generation uh, when it comes to income. And that observation on, on how we preserve knowledge uh, is, is also very true is the, the amount of times I've caught myself in, in your class, for an example, or in other classes quickly Googling a, a concept that, men, that, that you mentioned, let's say, let's go very basic realism. It took me two, three years and countless times of, of Googling that until I properly understood what it was. Because, you know, you Google it quickly, you know, ah, this is what the professor is talking about. But I would say you haven't made that effort, you know, of writing something down, understanding it yourself to truly go through that concept and actually understand it. That is a, that's a great example. That, so we are... Nowadays, in 2022, we are less incentivized to actually store it because we think that we can quickly Google it, exactly as you said. But that process is simply not the same psychological process than reading a book. Reading a book, reading a book on realism takes much longer than Googling, way longer. And it is a very slow process of knowledge acquisition. Not every page is full with data or information. Um, it often, you know, after reading a book, there's... The, the knowledge you've acquired can be counted maybe on one hand in terms of actual facts, you know, um, but that process of knowledge acquisition is much deeper and you store it much better. And so what would be the reason for this? I mean, on the one hand, maybe laziness. Um, I mean, to have less knowledge because or maybe because we want to win trivia games, that would be a reason to have knowledge. But why do we know less than the previous generation? Yeah, I wouldn't put a, a value judgment like laziness on, onto this. It is a matter of incentives. So exactly as you say, nowadays you are less rewarded by society to have broad general knowledge. You are less rewarded, rewarded to know who Thomas Aquinas is. Uh, because you can always quickly Google him, exactly as you just said. And the times that you would actually need it without... We, without being able to Google him are things such as playing Trivial Pursuit or maybe impressing friends at a bar with your, you know, with your intelligence or something like that. Whereas in the past, having that very broad general knowledge and the point of broad general knowledge is that you never know when you're going to need it, right? It's not specialized, specialized knowledge. It's broad knowledge that in certain situations becomes useful, professional or elsewhere. Having their broad general knowledge gave you a big advantage over others. It allowed you to be better at your job. It allowed you to be better at understanding the world. It allowed you to better um, come across in, in, in job interviews and things like that. And 
without that incentive, without people caring about that broad general knowledge, you really have to be an aficionado of reading or just really love history or love philosophy or love sociology to delve into those things. And very few people do that anymore. We know that your generation reads very, very little books. And I don't care about whether it's reading on actual paper or on tablets. The actual reading of a book from page one to page 400 hardly ever happens anymore. Um, and that leads to this very different connection to knowledge. And that has very profound consequences for who we are as humanity. Because without that broad general knowledge, it's going to be much harder to understand the the deeper implications of our behavior, the deeper reasons why we do something. Uh, later on, we'll talk about free speech. What is free speech? And what is the philosophical complication with free speech? Those kinds of issues are being undermined by our lack of reading, by our lack of knowledge acquisition. So rather than having an internet enhance, amplify our search for knowledge, it has decreased our search for knowledge. So now we've talked about how the internet has changed how we talk and think about knowledge, um, also how we see ourselves. One more thing I want to talk about is how the internet has changed the way we see others. Um, basically, how the internet has increased this development of personality cults. Um, I mean, the example we will talk about later on is obviously because we're talking about Twitter, Elon Musk. Um, but let's talk about it in, in general terms. I believe that, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but 30 years ago, you had celebrities on TV, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, that you had almost a personal connection to them because you see everything they're doing all day long because you see it on their Instagram stories or on their Twitter feed or whatever TikTok does. So I, I am relatively ignorant on social media, but for the last couple of months, because of this podcast, I've been active on LinkedIn um, and a little bit on Twitter as well, but mo mostly LinkedIn in a sense active. That means once a week, if that, posting about the podcast and that's it. But as a result, I've also been reading LinkedIn and it's been quite an experience um, to observe how society is now presenting itself, right? How it is not simply about saying, hey, hey, we are looking for a job. Does anyone want to apply to a job? Which makes a lot of sense on LinkedIn. Or saying, I've just published this new book. If you're interested, here, here's where you can buy it. I mean, that makes sense. That's a practical approach to social media and certainly a professional platform like LinkedIn. But instead, most of LinkedIn is filled with self-advertising, with a self-absorbed dynamic where you publish your accomplishments, where you signal to... I am proud... I am proud to announce. I'm proud to announce. I, I'm humbled to have received this reward telling um, me that I am great, right? It is, it is this, it, it has been a humbling experience to be selected as the top 5% of students at my university, that kind of thing. It has become a place where people sell themselves, not their ideas, not their actions, not the fact that they wrote a book or that they recorded a podcast, but they sell who they are as, an, as, a, as a human being before any ideas or um, actions get transmitted. And that is a huge change. Again, it is useful to go back to the 1950s or, again, any other time in history. 
if in the past you heard on the radio an expert talking about something, whatever it was, or you heard a politician say something, or you heard the CEO of a bank, or you read about the CEO of a bank taking some specific action with, with their bank, you would hear those words, you would think about those words, you would think about the impact of those actions, you would have no clue about the human being behind those actions, behind those words, behind that philosophy, behind those politics. You would maybe know their name, maybe have a vague sense of how old they must be from the sound of their voice, but you would not know if they were married, you would not know what their history was, you would not know anything about their if you like humanity, you would simply evaluate their words. And in many ways, that is incredibly pleasant because that means that we can focus on what's important. Um, a singer singing a good song is valuable to us because of their good song, not whether they are a good human being. A banker making a certain decision that is bad for the environment, I don't know, investing in fossil fuels, needs to be criticized for investing in fossil fuels, not for the fact that he just divorced his wife or that he abandoned his children. That is none of our business. We, don't, we should not care about that aspect. That is for his personal surroundings. And if he broke the law, then that should be about uh, legal authorities, the authorities following up on illegal behavior. Our, the value or the destruction that he causes to us is because of his action. The value of a singer is because of the value of the songs, not because of who they are behind that. And yet, nowadays in 2022, we seem to go through a purity test before we're even open to listening to their music, before we're even open to knowing anything about what they've got to tell us. Mm. I mean, if I may summarize this, I think this boiled down to we argue people we no longer argue arguments no it's not about what you said but it's about who said it and does this person is this person even allowed to say this uh does this person have the right credentials to say this and here i'm not talking about a phd or something else but here i'm talking about you know are they personally affected um by by x situation um, and I think that uh, fits the analogy you put with, I mean, having a purity test, you know, ticking all the boxes. Are you allowed to talk about uh, the environment because you're a young person, because old people are not allowed to talk about the environment, you know, because they're old and they're not going to be affected by it. They're the reason why all of this is bad. Exactly. So instead of caring about the words coming out of someone's mouth, we care about the nature of the mouth, right? Now, there are, of course, some situations where the human being behind it matters. So, for example, in certain situations, if um, you come from a specific background, maybe you have to be careful about making certain claims uh, without showing sensitivity to, um, to your context, right? So um, if I were to say, as a white, middle-aged man, oh... Um, I don't believe that young people um, should complain so much because they've got it easy compared to when I was a child. By the way, that's not true at all. It's the other way around. My generation had it much easier, but that's beside the point. If I were to say something like that, maybe my analysis is correct, but it's good for me to show some kind of sensitivity to the fact that I'm saying that from my comfortable 
middle age, middle class perspective. And I maybe need to show a little bit of care in, in judging others, right? Sometimes there is a little bit of value in that, but that is minimal value. That is, that is the most important aspect of what I'm saying is the actual words and not who is the person behind that. See, and this changes the way we interact with others. This changes the previously existing dynamics of society. Absolutely, because it means that whereas in the past you cared about the nature of your friends, because either they were your friends or you're not, but you, besides that, you wouldn't be all that interested in what others did. I remember Europeans sometimes frowning at American politics in the 1980s, where U.S. politics was much harsher in terms of so if someone got a divorce, then they would be in political trouble. Whereas Europeans said, what do we care about a politician having a divorce? That's none of our business. We care about their policies. Nowadays, everyone cares about everything in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere, right? So we, we start caring about private aspects of people that we will never have to be friends. We judge much more aggressively other people, not just their ideas. I... Uh, which is interesting because we are now living in sort of a an upside down kind of world. This is this is related to people um, not want, saying that you should respect someone else's opinion. Respect my opinion. Um, if you, if you don't respect my opinion, you don't respect me as a human being. Which is of course the wrong way round. I will absolutely criticize your opinion or analysis if you make mistakes in it, and it's part of my area of expertise, because that's what intellectual debate is about. But after that, I'll very happily have a drink with you, and I'm happy to assume that you're a good human being and that I wasn't trying to undermine or disrespect you as a person. I was just being critical of your analysis. Nowadays, we act as if opinions are just sacred and can't be touched because they're so directly linked to the bubble, to the cult of personality, to the idea that whatever I say is directly linked to who I am. And surely, I mean, to quote here the John Maynard Keynes, when facts change, I change my mind. Um, you know, that the idea that we should always be open to, be, to having people point out that something that we say is not factually correct or is illogical, and therefore our opinion, opinion in quotation marks, is incorrect and that is part of that search for knowledge that hunger for knowledge that has nothing to do with you as a human being i am not interested in your private life and i am happily assuming that you're a good person who i can happily have a beer with afterwards so this kind of thinking where it becomes much more aggressive everything because everything we say is connected to who we are rather than the actual words coming out of our mouth. And with this, I would say that we move on to the next category because we are already talking a lot about the damages here. What is the problem? And I would like to start by uh, talking about three historic personalities and uh, maybe looking at how society would judge them nowadays um, because our morals and our standards have changed, but that this does not necessarily undermine the ideas and concepts that these three personalities uh, created and starting with a person uh, that, that you're very fond of, uh, Darwin. Well, to slightly correct you here, so I am not fond of him as a person because I don't know much about his person and I don't care about him as a person. Um, but what is true is that I kind of provocatively for years now have used him as my picture on WhatsApp 
first of all, because I feel uncomfortable putting my own pictures on stuff, uh, but also because Darwin, Darwin's value to us has been immense. He, I mean, he was not the only one, and without him, other people would have come up with the same ideas at some point, but Charles Darwin laid the foundation of the theory of evolution as we know it today, and he contributed enormously to our understanding of who we are as human beings. That is his value. It is also true that he had very deep racist tendencies. But that race, those racist tendencies are not what makes him relevant to me or what makes him relevant to the world. If he had been a professor on race relations, then I would care about the context of him being a racist. But given that his value to the world was simply about how do we how did we come into existence? How did the world evolve into what it is nowadays? Is incredibly important. And to sort of cancel him <laughs> simply because he also was a racist, if you can put a label next to him, which I'm not knowledgeable enough if you can, but he certainly had his racist tendencies, seems to me to me missing the point. But if Darwin had existed in the 21st century, his work would not have been acceptable because of the things he said, right? Which would have been doing a huge disservice to humanity. And keep in mind that the fact that Darwin was a racist was sort of the norm of those days. Um, then you would go into a direction where none of the great thinkers of the, of the world before, let's say, the 1950s, or if we want to be generous, before the 1900s, would be acceptable. Their thoughts should always come with a huge disclaimer. This guy, because it's almost always a guy, was a patriarchal, racist, sexist, xenophobe. And therefore, we will not take his thoughts seriously. Well, hang on. Yeah, that was the norm in those days, and that is not acceptable nowadays in human behavior. But surely their ideas is what matters to us. Their thinking, them helping us as humanity progress is what we care about. Surely. I mean, here I always like to use the example of us and how we will be viewed by our children and grandchildren. Is I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, meat alternatives uh, will develop further. And I mean, I've even read in, in a few books predicting the future, laying out scenarios for the future, that eating meat in itself is not going to be fashionable anymore because the alternatives are a lot more healthier, they're better for you, um, and they're better for the environment. So I could imagine a, a world in which uh, my grandchildren look down, uh, well, look look back on me and, and ask me, how, how could you eat meat? You know, that was terrible for the planet. It wasn't good for your health. Um, X, Y, Z, all of these reasons. Why didn't you eat these alternatives? Animal that must have made you a welfare. What kind of monster would kill animals for pleasure? That kind of thing. Exactly. So what, like, you must have been a terrible person back then. I'm like, well, <laughs> absolutely. And that's... And my thinking about that's always that I would hope, but maybe I'm too, you know, optimistic about where we're going as humanity, but I would hope that a hundred years from now, people look very critically at, for example, items such as immigration, the way we deal with immigrants and the way we desperately try to keep people out of our society and want to protect the wealth that we have. I hope that in the future in history books that will be written about as a deeply immoral issue, maybe not quite at the level of slavery from the 19th century, but still pretty, pretty bad. But would that mean that everything that is being said now is illegitimate a hundred years from now? Surely not. 
And that is, that is, that is, we have to be very careful in wanting to live in a world where everyone, every individual, whether it is now in the present day or in the past, gets judged for whether they pass this human purity test or not. Because then nobody's allowed to speak anymore. And all we're asking for is for everyone to lie to each other, to pretend that we're good. It's all about signaling that you're good rather than actually being good. And that is an important difference. Showing on social media that you're on the right side of the moral spectrum. Not actually being on the right side of the moral spectrum, but showing it, signaling it. That mm -hmm. is, that is, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And another individual that would not pass this purity test would be Thomas Jefferson. And, and you can see this quite a lot already, right? So Thomas Jefferson is obviously, in today's standards, uh, if, well, he couldn't exist today because what he did was illegal nowadays, fortunately, but he was a slave owner. And he comes from a slave-owning family, and he was very rich, and he, I don't know exactly the number, but he had many slaves. And he never gave that up, despite, by the way, some of his fellow founding fathers criticizing him for it. Um, slavery is horrible. I can say as a person in the 21st century, but I would hope that, you know, we can apply that kind of morality to uh, throughout history. Slavery, owning another human being is just bad. But that is not the value that Thomas Jefferson has delivered to us. The, he was an important instrument in creating the U.S. Constitution and, uh, uh, and the dynamics that led to the creation of a very successful and influential nation. Now, what is interesting is surely to analyze the slavery roots of the United States and to see that as an original sin and to see how that affects sociologically, psychologically, still the United States and the rest of the world in the 21st century. That's absolutely fine. We should absolutely understand and discuss slavery. But to delegitimize the political work of Thomas Jefferson simply because he was a slave owner seems to be missing the point once again. And the last individual goes back to my roots as an international relations student is I remember uh, there was this time when I was in a taxi and I had just learned about Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the social contract. And I remember being pretty convinced by his words. I mean, previous authors I'd read had never convinced me that much. Uh, so I was talking to this taxi driver because there's this joke in Germany that all taxi drivers are philosophy students. Um, and this man had also studied philosophy before. And he criticized Rousseau a lot. However, he didn't criticize him for his ideas of the social contract. But he basically said, no, you know, he was a terrible person because he, he fathered five children um, and then just left them with churches and never cared about them and just traveled through the country. So that's again... Such a good example. Yes, human beings are hypocrites. And there might be absolutely, if you are his, if you were his friend, uh, it's, you, you might criticize him. Hey, you're right about these beautiful ideals, about how to educate children, how our society should, uh, should strengthen childhood and then further human development. And then at the same time, in your own life, you hypocritically completely do the opposite. As a friend of Rousseau, I could imagine me saying that to him and pointing that out to him. But from our broader perspective, as people living 200 years later, and more than that, and, and, and looking at his work, what does it matter? What matters is whether his analysis was correct, whether the value of his philosophy was correct. 
pointing out that he was a hypocrite is just pointing out that he was a human being, a flawed human being, as all of us are flawed in certain ways, and none of us can pass an absolute purity test, especially given that that purity test changes over time. Uh, so why dedicate our energy on judging Rousseau rather than taking his books and saying, wow, this is really interesting, this is useful, this is helpful to us? I mean, I'm sure I qualify as a hypocrite as well. Uh, if you look at my essays or the writings I did for, for Raya, um, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of elements of the Western bubble in there. So, but, but this is the point for everything, right? Um, we, we have pointed out in our podcast various times um, the, the problem with Western arrogance, if you like, the, the delusion about liberal democracy being this eternally superior mechanism and yet, we are very much biased in that direction ourselves as well. Um, we've pointed out the problem with the environment, and yet we are consumers. We, we, we consume more than we need to to survive. Every time we buy something off Amazon or we go into a shop and buy new clothes that we don't really need, we're contributing to polluting the environment further. Um, we have money in our bank accounts that we could share with um, homeless people when we and yet we criticize poverty there are all these things that are gray ambiguous moral issues and at an individual level it is important for us to do better to strive to be better human beings but judging others for not being perfect at a moral level and and making mistakes, some bigger than others, and sometimes being hypocritical. Yeah, I don't really know where that gets us. I don't really see how that is going to bring value to the world, which is, by the way, very different from seeing abusive behavior in a, uh, at work and um, firing someone for, I don't know, um, doing, being corrupt or uh, harassing other workers or anything like that. That is that is something that needs to happen because that's about practical action. Someone is currently being immoral on the at the, in the workplace. You as an employer need to fire them because they are doing damage to your co-workers. Now, that is different from us sitting behind the computer screen and judging Charles Darwin or judging Thomas Jefferson or Rousseau. And so moving on on the line of individuals we're talking about, and now we're no longer talking about historical individuals. Um, we're moving into the direction of the case study of Twitter. Uh, let's talk about Elon Musk for a few minutes, just because I think he's a fascinating individual to analyze in today's world. And he's almost the embodiment of today's world. I mean, for some reason, there has been a personality cult built around him. I mean, I'm pretty sure half of Twitter hates him. The other half loves him. Um, but there is something about him. Yes, it's very much a world which increasingly, once again, which started arguably in the 1980s and certainly has been amplified since, where we already admire wealth. Now, we did a whole episode on, on wealth and income inequality and the, the rational analysis would be that wealthy people is a negative Core, uh, a neg negative externality, if you like, a negative outcome of the system we have, but something we can't do much about. It is what it is, if you want to keep the system we have, but it shouldn't be anything to celebrate. Unfortunately, somehow we have decided that wealth is to be celebrated and people who are wealthier should be celebrated more. So we've got these 
really rich people like Elon Musk and we say, wow, you're a hero just because you're the richest person on earth. So you must have done something really, really right. That is already unfortunate. And beyond that, we have then this army of followers who do not understand the difference between someone being good at business. Clearly, Elon Musk has some business acumen. I mean, he's clearly good at making money, <laughs> much better than I would ever be. Uh, confusing that ability with philosophical value, with political value. So when he tweets out, and we know he tweets out a lot, issues on politics or on philosophy, on, on sociology, then his all, whole army of followers is in awe of what he writes, despite it being, from what I can tell, um, not based on any significant expertise, any significant understanding of the philosophy he's referring to, any significant broad general knowledge. But then, of course, his army of followers doesn't know, don't know that because they don't have that broad general knowledge themselves. So they just eat it up as if every word out of Elon Musk's mouth is somehow gold. And so this man who apparently speaks gold uh, has used a lot of his gold to buy Twitter. And it has been a ride uh, since then. Let's, let's, let's call it that. I mean, it started by him tweeting on the day that he bought Twitter, let that sink in and posted a picture of him carrying a bathroom sink. Um, which, I mean, he is a character, you know, there is something inherently entertaining about him. I, I personally uh, think so, at least. Um, but then he also tweets things that are more connected to, you know, the, I mean, the basics of society. And I think my favorite tweet right at the beginning, when he then took over Twitter, was when he simply wrote, the bird is freed. And with this, he made a reference to, you know, free speech. And then the European response to this, uh, coming from uh, Thierry Breton, who is one of the European commissioners, uh, said, in Europe, the bird will fly here by our rules, um, which I just thought was very entertaining, but then started a long rant of free speech tweets that we will analyze in the, in the coming minutes. And this, this within the context of him basically forcing himself to buy Twitter after for a couple of years ranting about Twitter not sufficiently respecting free speech, right? So it, it's been an hilarious story even before he purchased it because essentially it went something like this, tweeting out, oh, Twitter should have more uh, freedom of speech, Twitter should moderate, tweet, uh, Twitter shouldn't ban Donald Trump and others, blah, yada, yada, yada. Then someone pointing out, hey, if you care so much about free speech, why don't you buy Twitter? Him saying, maybe I will. And him falling into this dynamic where he couldn't get out of it anymore. And at the end was legally obliged by Twitter to buy Twitter. I mean, it's it's an absolutely slapstick kind of scenario, uh, which also shows, I would argue, a certain level of incompetence on his side, if I uh, might be so bold. I am not as entertained as you are maybe about him. I, he is, you're absolutely correct. He is an entertainer. Uh, there's even um, a tweet out there where he wrote in 2021, um, thinking of quitting my job and becoming an influencer full time. Um, right. So he clearly enjoys the entertainment aspect. Why I'm not as entertained by him as maybe I should be is that it would be funny if he was a comedian or if he was someone in the business of entertaining people but he is the richest person on earth 
and he is the CEO of various important influential companies. And that's with great power comes great responsibility, if you like, that requires him to understand his role in society. His role is not simply to create a cult around himself. His role is to take his position, his enormous wealth, his enormous political and economic power seriously in a way that is not compatible with just entertaining the crowds, entertaining his 100 million followers. And, and that concerns me because, the again, we're moving towards a world where it is all about this extroverted entertainment rather than actual serious policymaking and understanding that those two things conflict sometimes. When you tweet something out, that might conflict with your ability to positively influence the world. I think an example of this, um, he tweeted in uh, April of 2022, um, right after he announced he would he would buy Twitter. Um, and there he kind of talked about, you know, I would will bring free speech back to the platform. And then he felt like he needed to explain himself and said, by free speech, I simply mean that uh, which matches the law. I'm against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they will ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. And that in itself is such a fascinating quote. Uh, it shows very much this this attitude, this 21st century attitude of not really understanding what democracy and what free speech and what majority thinking is the will of the people is about, right? It is this idea that as long as 51% of humanity believes in something, then that should be implemented, which is only something that someone would say if they don't get the underlying fundamentals of what a free society should be like. Uh, it, to say the only thing we care about is free speech and beyond that, you know, that free speech that sets the tone is first of all not acknowledging that the government, for very good reasons by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, for good, very good reasons, does the bare minimum necessary for people to behave within society. It is not the government's role to interfere too much with individuals, therefore simply not breaking the law cannot be a sufficient condition for our human behavior, surely. And the moment that you have a hugely influential platform, such as being the owner of Twitter, is the moment that it's perfectly all right to strive for something a little bit more than that lowest common legal denominator. Where that balance is, that's a difficult conversation. And that is that complexity is something that he has found out since buying Twitter. But it shows that this is a, a, a person who is not equipped to understand the deeper underlying foundations, yet he has enormous power, so much power that he can buy one of the most popular social media platforms on the planet. And that should surely concern us. Yeah, because and so one of the topics that he was very outspoken um, about was people being banned from Twitter. And I do remember that, especially after Trump, uh, President Donald Trump, was banned from Twitter after the uh, events of January 6th, you know, where through his tweets or words, um, people stormed the Capitol. After that, he was banned by Twitter. And I remember initially thinking, good, you know, if people, people shouldn't uh, ignite violence in social media. But then very quickly thinking, 
one second, a company having the power to ban a president from social media, that's that's a power that I'm very uncomfortable a few people in a company having. Now you theoretically have that power within a single individual who then puts this up to Twitter polls um, and, then, and then basically equates those Twitter polls to democracy given the fact that his following might not necessarily be a well-reflection of society. I found it difficult. And you mentioned the fact that, you know, the will of the people is 51%. What he then did was pull out a poll on Twitter um, and asked whether he should reinstate former President Trump. And 51.8% voted yes, and 48.2% voted no. Um, 15 million people voted. Um, and then he simply said, the people have spoken, Trump will be reinstated, vox populi, vox dei. And he did something similar uh, with a general amnesty, right? Should Twitter offer a general amnesty to suspended accounts, he tweeted out on the 23rd of November, provided they have not broken the law or engaged in, in egregious spam. And then 72.4% uh, said yes and 27.6% said no. And then he says, the people have spoken. Amnesty begins next week. Again, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. I personally am not a big fan of uh, banning Donald Trump, but it is a complex, ambiguous issue. And that complexity cannot be reduced to popularity contests. Certainly not those on Twitter, which have nothing to do with democracy, because there is a huge bias in who votes in these and who doesn't, for example, I would never ever vote in a poll by Elon Musk. I've got better things to do in my life. So the idea that 72% uh, of the people have spoken, those 72% of the people responding to this tweet of his have spoken, which is a very different issue, reducing the complexity of where free speech begins and where it ends. Or let me rephrase that, where a company decides that free speech begins and ends, reducing that complexity to opinion polls is very much part of the 21st century and very much goes against the kind of society we should want to create. And let's make that a little bit worse or intense, because on November 29th, he then posted a tweet saying, this is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Which you know goes, which you know goes into the direction of you know let's 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 go so far to the extremes that there's only a black and white thinking, and then ultimately you know anyone who is against anything I say is against free speech. And then he did this by then criticizing Apple because Apple had pulled advertising. So he tweeted, "Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America?" At, um, I don't know. It's to me, you know, this man has lost touch to reality, especially on that topic. Well, and again, it shows so it shows the complexity and the idea that we live in a society where the legality of speech gets established by government means that afterwards individuals and companies can make their own choices, right? With respect to where they want to go. And if Twitter errs on a towards the side of greater, if you like, free speech, at least less moderation than Apple feels comfortable with, both of those companies are entitled to take their position. Twitter is allowed to take a certain position that advocates less moderation. And Apple says, well, if Twitter does that, we don't feel comfortable with that. We Our company culture are, is different from that, so we're going to pull advertising. There's no bad guy in that conversation. There are just two companies with different perspectives showing the ambiguity 
of these kinds of issues. And yet, you very clearly and very well mentioned it just now, we live in a world where it is binary, right? Where it is, you're either with us or you're against us. So the moment that you do not share Elon Musk's perspective on free speech, you're with tyranny. And this brings me back to this innocent human being from the 1950s being asked about a conceptual theoretical internet, they would have thought that diversity of thought and human understanding would have been enhanced by the internet, that by connecting to so many other diverse people around the world, we would be less judgmental, less rooted into our own little bubbles. Instead, what the internet is doing, it is amplifying the bubbles and it's making the bubbles way more aggressive you don't share my perspective then you are morally reprehensible that is what the internet is doing to us and that is something that we should be very concerned about because it is incredibly damaging and very problematic um, however we do not want to leave the listeners like this again we do not provide clear-cut solutions about the future of the world but we do talk about what now so Boulder. What's the future? I mean, let's let me ask this very point blank. Would the world be better off or worse off without Twitter? <laughs> um, I am not I, I am I'm not equipped to answer that question. What is obvious um, for us for an outsider at least is that Musk is playing with fire. Twitter is fragile at the moment because of this sort of unorganized, unconsolidated kind of behavior from his perspective, sort of, it's, it's, it feels a little bit with, actually, I want to say with all due respect, but it shows very little respect, I'm afraid, uh, for Elon Musk. It shows a little bit behavior of a man-child who just one morning wakes up and tweets out something and the following morning realizes that it was a bad thing and then goes back on it. And it, it shows very little serious planning or policy making, but if Twitter disappears, there will be a new type of Twitter, surely. There will be new platforms that become popular. The, the real question is how we can make the internet as productive and as valuable to our human society as possible, right? How we can sort of grant the dreams of that innocent 1950s person, how we can make sure that the internet as a whole, rather than independent social platforms, works to advance our knowledge, advance our understanding, advance our diversity in thought, and advance the strength of human argument and um, the, the, the intellectual power of who we are as a society. Those are, the, those are the things that the internet should be able to provide in a positive, constructive way. And there are these positive and constructive elements of the internet. I think the main example, the most positive example I can think about is Wikipedia, a platform that every student, I would make a bold claim here, uses at the beginning of their research because it is a fantastic way to obtain information in a quick way that is usually, uh, not always, explained in a more or less understandable manner. And not only is it that, but also the concept behind it, because, you know, it's for free, it's uh, accessible to all, um, and it's almost accessible to all to also contribute to this, you know, so where all the expertise of the world theoretically is combined into one open source database. It's, it's, it's incredible, and it is exactly what you would have hoped for if you were that 1950s person, 
uh, a world where anyone can just go there. In the past, we had to buy those big uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, no, fill a whole bookshelf with them. Uh, and then there would not be anything updated. So 10 years later, you would need to get a new book that would be editing all the old versions. Now on Wikipedia, it happens continuously, permanently, and you can go on Wikipedia and you know exactly that the information that you have is updated and most likely very accurate. Exactly. I mean, the so I'm a Wikipedia contributor myself, yet at a very low level. And so anytime I edit something, there's a very rigorous review process where someone who has done a lot on Wikipedia and who is basically a senior editor, that they review it and then they will even openly mark uh, market for everyone to be to be seen that oh this lacks a source or this source is questionable and all of this is then financed by donations it's not that there's one evil overlord behind this or a government uh, basically paying this but it's just donations from from anyone and an awful lot of volunteers like yourself putting your free time in which is also valuable into something for the greater good and also because it's just fun to be part of this global community working on this right uh, it is it is exactly what one would hope for the internet could be like an, a foundation for the sharing and and a development of knowledge and i think another example of a positive and constructive element of the internet um i'm going to call ourselves positive now would be this podcast uh, the fact that we can um, not only share this with listeners all over the world i mean I think most of our listeners will, will just have seen their Spotify stats. And for us, it's, I think, uh, if, if listeners from over 26 different countries, but we're also sitting in completely different parts of the world. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So I, I am here in Madrid looking at you while you're in Berlin. Linda is also in Madrid, but in a different part of town, um, part of this conversation. Then we sent the recording to Usama, our wonderful editor, who is in the United Kingdom. Then that gets uploaded to a Swedish platform like Spotify. And then people, I, I, the last stat I saw was even 28 countries. We've got regular listeners in 28 different countries, listen to it and send us feedback and questions and comments. It is, it is an incredibly beautiful world from that perspective. Living an enormously beautiful period of human history, if you look at it at that level, now the question is, how can we avoid the, the very serious detrimental effects of living in a, also a society that because of the internet has become so incredibly judgmental, losing what is important, losing touch with uh, actually the value of knowledge and instead creating these cults of personality and feeling the need to become part of this cesspit of self-absorbed advertising rather than actually caring about your intellectual ideas, your, your, your creativity, instead caring about how you come across to the rest of the world. So the fight is there. The fight is to emphasize everything that is good, the ability to exchange knowledge and all those things, and lessen the psychological impact of what we're doing to ourselves, how we're fighting on the internet. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the impact of social media and Twitter in particular on global dynamics. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. 
Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Well, a common theme in what we've just been saying is that duality of the internet. Uh, the, the, the good side and the dangerous side, the destructive side, and the idea that currently it feels a little bit as if the destructive side is winning out, which is something that hopefully we can change. And so I got two quotes from two American academics and authors, uh, Lawrence Lessig and Roxane Gay. And the, both quotes show exactly the duality of where we're going with the internet, um, both when it comes to the difference between intellectual progress that the internet can really benefit as well as the strengthening or weakening of social dynamics, as we have analyzed. The first quote by Lawrence Lessig, Notwithstanding the fact that the most innovative and progressive space we've seen, the internet, has been the place where intellectual property has been least respected. You know, facts don't get in the way of this ideology. And the second by Roxane Gay, Social media is something of a double-edged sword. At its best, social media offers unprecedented opportunities for marginalized people to speak and bring much-needed attention to the issues they face. At its worst, social media also offers everyone an unprecedented opportunity to share in collective outrage without reflection.